Sometimes I thank God, says Garth Brooks, for unanswered prayer. We all know something of that type of unanswered prayer. To refresh our memory on Garth's song, as a high school boy, he finds himself fascinated with a girl who he thinks would be his perfect life partner. And if God would just make that be so, he would never ask for anything again. Years later, he returns for a high school football game and he meets his old high school flame. And for reasons undisclosed, he realizes that the woman he has married is the gift of his life. We have all asked God for something that we did not receive. Maybe it was a college admission that we did not get or a job that seemed perfect for us, but we did not get that job either. Only later, sometimes much later, do we realize that the path that we are on is likely better than the path we would have been on had we gotten our way in the first place. To quote Garth one last time, the Lord knows what he's doing after all. But sometimes it seems that what the Lord is doing is nothing at all. Today I want to look beyond our high school prayers. I want to go to the place that none of us want to be, but that at some point most of us will be. As C.S. Lewis said, every war, every famine or plague, almost every deathbed is the monument to a petition that was not granted. So I want to deal with what happens to us and our relationship with God when we ask desperately for something that we know should be and, and is in God's will. When we, we pray for health instead of debilitating illness, when we pray for war or peace instead of war, when we pray for life over death, for sobriety over addiction, and the prayer is not answered. I come at this topic with trepidation because it's a sensitive and even a hurtful issue. I know that as humans, as a society, and it must be said, the church sometimes, have offered terrible, heart-wrenching, demeaning advice or commentary. This at a time when we should not be offering advice at all, but only compassion and listening. But sometimes with a, a kind of blind or belligerent piety, we see fit to defend God by shifting the blame to the one who is praying. People in desperation, with nowhere else to turn but to God, have been told that there's something wrong in their life or something wrong with their prayer life. They're not praying fervently enough or often enough. And are you sure you're praying in Jesus' name? As if prayer were some kind of magical incantation. 
These are the people like Job's so-called friends, friends who encouraged Job to confess his sins as if they didn't have any. Job's good buddy Bildad says, If you are pure and upright, surely God will rouse himself for you and restore you to your rightful place. This kind of counsel goes on for eight chapters before Job finally says, I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. So, before going further, let me say you are not or you were not, you have not been praying wrong. I quoted Tish Harrison Warren in another sermon, and it bears repeating. There's really no wrong way to pray. You cannot fail at prayer except by giving it up altogether. We don't pray to convince God to see our needs. He asks us to pray, to tell him what we most long for, because he loves us deeply. We enter into the practice of prayer in response to the fact that we are already loved. God's love and devotion to us, not ours to him, is the source of our prayer. So, to those of you who have prayed faithfully and consistently for the life of a loved one, either for the life itself or for the life that seemed to be headed in the wrong direction, for those who have prayed that the cancer would retreat or that the cure would be found, for those who have prayed and prayed and the doctors can do no more, for those of you who have and for those of us who will pray those kind of prayers, I want to offer some observations, not advice, but observations to hope that I hope will help us make it through when God seems silent. First of all, there's a place for mystery. Reverend Maxie Dunham was the president of the seminary when I met him, but before that he was the world editor of the Upper Room Fellowship. It's the same group of people that provide the Upper Room Ministry devotional books that we find every month outside our greeting areas in the church, and you can find them through uh, the Upper Room Ministries. At a chapel service, Reverend Dunham told us the story about one of his grandsons who was losing his sight. The ophthalmologists and all kinds of experts had used all kinds of equipment to see his optic nerves and see that they were white and drying. The boy was going blind. Reverend Dunham called on his staff of prayer warriors all around the world to pray for the young boy. Now sometime in the, in the midst of all this, there was a disruption in the family. They had to move for some reason, a job change or something. So three or four months later, the parents took the child to another specialist in another town and told that doctor about the optic nerves and how they were white and dried out. Well, he looked through whatever fancy machine it is that allows doctors to see behind the eyes, looked and looked some more, 
turned around and told the parents, these optic nerves are fine. They're pink, they're rosy, they're healthy. The doctor conferred with the doctor in the other city. Both doctors swapped their own images and their reports. They showed each other what they had seen and what they had reported. And a whole group of other doctors looked over all of those records. They all agreed that both doctors were right at the time they had made their diagnosis. And nobody could explain what happened. And then Reverend Dunham said, I never tell that story without telling this one. And he proceeded to tell much the same story about another grandson whose hearing was failing. Same kind of thing. Doctors had looked. Doctors could do no more. Dr. Dr. Dunham went to the, his group of his worldwide staff of prayer warriors again, asked for prayer for the grandson. But the boy had to wear hearing aids and has to wear them all of his life. So what do we, what do we say about that? What can, what can we conclude? Did, did God love one child more than another? Can God heal eyes but not ears? Did the staff at Upper Room Ministries pray less fervently the second time than they did the first time around? The only thing we can rightly conclude is that God's ways are mysterious beyond our understanding. Would you worship a God who is not greater than we can understand? The pagan nations around ancient Israel were full of gods like that, gods that had been invented by people, gods that were just as short-sighted, as warlike, as petty as they were, gods who were invented. But God, our God, identified God's self to us, to Moses, with the words, I am. Now, there's a boatload of theology in those two words, I am. But basically, God identified himself. God is who God is. God identified God's self to us. We didn't invent or manufacture him. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? There is a place for mystery. And there is a place for anger. Some of that anger is expressed in the sermon text from Psalm 77. Will the Lord spurn forever? and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises at an end for all time? And the prophet Habakkuk begins with anger at God. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? And from Isaiah, look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation. Where are your zeal and your might, the yearning of your heart and your compassion? They are withheld from me. If Habakkuk and Isaiah and the psalmists can express their anger at God without getting smited, so can you. And there is a place 
for spiritual growth. By our definition, unanswered prayer is prayer that God did not answer in the way that we had asked or in the way that we had hoped or in the time that we had allotted. But prayer as we know or should know or will come to know is not about us getting what we want, but about us being formed in the image of Christ, being more Christ-like, of having the same mind in us that was in Christ Jesus. One writer, commenting on Mother Teresa's periods of darkness, said, The truest blessing we find and the only faithfulness we exercise in the times of clawing emptiness may come not in being able to see an answer to our prayers, but in finding ourselves as the embodiments of God's merciful response to someone else's prayers. My wife Laurel and I have friends who, with whom we went through much of our parenting years. Our first two children were born a week apart, and their son and our daughter were playmates for a number of years. Our daughter is now in her 40s. Their son, Dusty, died of leukemia at age 11. Dusty's dad, for whom golf had been the most severe form of exercise, took up running. And like Forrest Gump, he ran and he ran and he ran and he ran. And about a year later, he began participating in the 465-mile run between Memphis and Peoria, the run for St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, the facility where Dusty had received his treatments and his care. He joined a team that, like all the teams, had a support group and an RV, and no one person runs 465 miles, but the teams run nonstop in the heat of the day, the dark of the night. Sometimes they ride along, somebody's riding in the, the RV, sleeping or eating, recovering from their last leg of the run and preparing for the next one, but someone is running all the time. It's not a race you win, it's a race that you complete. Dusty's parents and every other participant in this annual event have found themselves as the embodiments of God's merciful response to someone else's prayers. All of them, everyone in this annual event, are participating to hasten the day when no child will die from leukemia. There's a place for spiritual growth. And there's a place for comfort. God has promised to be with us, to never leave us or forsake us. Psalms of lament end with a remembrance of God's past actions in individual or communal lives and with an assurance that God is still at work in the world. I recently sent in our 32nd consecutive annual contribution to the Memphis to Peoria run for St. Jude's Children's Hospital. Our friends remind us and everybody on their list of this August event with a mid-year email that doubles as their Christmas card. In the past, they would provide the address of the hospital and we would mail the check 
to the hospital. But this year, like many other things, that's become more automated. And there's a website now. And you go to the website and you find your runner and you make your donation. But with that website, there are also, there's also a place where you can see notes from the runners, the participants in the race. And so for the first time, I read about runners on Dusty's team who felt his presence or saw his vision with them running in the middle of the night. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. There is a place for mystery. We cannot know the mind of God. There's a place for anger. The prophets and the psalmists felt that too. There's a place for spiritual growth. We can become the physical embodiment of a response to someone else's prayer. And there is a place for comfort. God will never leave us or forsake us. It is God's devotion to us that makes our prayers possible in the first place. God is with us. God will never leave us or forsake us. Thanks be to God. Amen.